we started our business, right? And yeah, it doesn't make a ton of money, I guess, in relation to what I've witnessed in the past. But my burden was that somehow we would be able to, yeah, kids, here goes Smith. Let's just want to hang out and get really radically um, changed. Um, so my burden was that somehow I needed to figure out with the county how we could tithe from our, our company. Because I really want to see the growth through our company too, but I want to help the church, I just know the way. Our paychecks are nothing, we don't really pay ourselves much. So, but the, but the company's making money. And so we did that last week, and it's just something like 100 bucks or whatever, but man, I'll tell you what, the craziest increase just started moving in yeah. our business. I mean, just, does he work in tens in your life? What's he working? What's the number that God works? Is it sevens? What is the thing that he does to show you that it's him? What did he have to do? Eduardo was speaking about the Spirit of the Lord this morning. And I had some time last night to finally study and get away and get back to that place. And everything he was talking about as he's relating Egypt and our experience to victory is so important. But even in Egypt, well, how did he deal with you? So he would deal with me with sevens, but then he would do something intense. He would say, seven is this thing that I'm going to work, I'm going to complete. But when I bless, I'm going to bless in ten. So if it's a if it's a, if it's a hundred, it's always a thousand. If it was fifty, it was five hundred. So whatever it is in your life, you understand that God is saying, it's hard. You have poured water. Please, you know, please, guys. We have to get, man, hey, this is God's church, too. And you don't have to bear that burden. And Michael, or Sean, you don't have to bear that burden. Michael, you don't have to bear that burden. We need to come together as a body Amen. and believe God for big things. Yes. It's a small congregation. Yes. I don't know what God wants to do with this. It's sad to me sometimes I feel like this is closed off to people that need to hear what's going on here. I don't know what God's going to do in the season when we move, but um, it's going to be sweet. So be refreshed in the sense that giving, although it's hard, especially when you're in the, the, the broken place. Well, we just don't have it this month, Jeff. No, we just don't, we just don't have it any month, Jeff. It's just something small. Why? Because it's an issue of my heart. What did the widow give that was so magnificent that moved Christ to stop looking over here and look at the temple where the offering was being given? What did she do? Well, she dropped that million-dollar check to the National Charity League, and she uh, and she was really she was a blessing. And yeah, she's got billions in Houston. No, she had two mites. Somehow, with two mites, this is not a giving message. I'm sorry. With two mites, move the heart and the mind and the focus of Christ. Amen. That is an amazing revelation in who He is. It is not so much that we would give this big thing. Christmas is coming to you. Man, God, I don't know what y'all's hearts, but. Having children and Xbox dreams, Barbie houses, and I go, that's four dollars. Where are you getting four dollars from? You know. So even trusting the Lord to bless your children, man. I mean, Barbie houses just fall out of the sky sometimes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Better have my uh, I'm very blessed, so I don't get a lot of opportunity to teach, so I take it really seriously. Uh, in a way of it's a testimony of God, it's walking before the altar, it's it's giving him something that's not strange fire. But it's his fire. So when you're getting up in front of people, it's it's <clears throat> sometimes worship. I'm, I'm gonna say this in a minute. Sometimes you can, hey, we didn't practice. All right, let's just go with it because we have all this experience and we have all this old practice. Maybe God's asking for a new practice. So when it comes to studying the Word, I don't want yesterday's message to be what I give to the people that need something fresh today. Mm-hmm. When you go in to look for daily bread, it's not yesterday's bread. Right. I don't want gold bread. I don't want moldy bread. Okay, that bread doesn't look real good. Well, I'll eat it because I'm hungry. No, I 
daily bread, manna from heaven. I want to walk out in the fields. I want to pick that stuff off the ground. I want to take it back. I want to make something out of my day with it. Because that manna has to be the thing that sustains me. I don't live by bread alone, but I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When the money, when the family's gone, and you're in Egypt, what is it that you're relying on? What is it you're trusting on? There's an idea and a theme. I just keep having this Mary Did You Know song, and it has nothing to do with the message. But I just hear it, I hear it, I hear it, I hear it. And what did she know? And I was thinking, God, that's it. I'm going to preach. What did Mary know? You know? No, it wasn't that. It was a revelation in who God was through two words that he used that are very peculiar, even in the Hebrew idiom, and even to us today. And so discussing or discovering the great I am. How many people know what that means? How many people have just glazed over that scripture? That's kind of weird and pithy. I was talking to a brother last night. He goes, I'm just I'm discussing the scripture we're about to get into. And I'm, I'm just opening up. I feel like God is just revealing. He goes, get the point, man. What are we talking about? I said, no, we're talking about the great I am. But to the casual seeker and believer, the great I am means nothing. It's more about the monetary, the physical thing that I can see. But to see him in a way that you haven't seen him before, we're going to get into a scripture, Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 1. We're going to play in Exodus for a little bit. Moses, Moses. <laughs> I've already made a great point about Moses and this idea of Egypt and captivity. God has heard the cry of his people. God has picked a leader and he's chosen for himself and he's going to use him. Was that leader equipped to do what God needed him to do? Maybe not in his own heart, but he really was. And what's amazing when I find this leader in, in this scripture in Exodus chapter 3, what is he doing? I don't know. I was talking with Marcia and we were just dealing with shepherds and sheepfolds and our lack of experience of just shepherding even in the West. You don't even know what that means. It doesn't mean anything to you. But to their culture and their tradition, shepherding's a big deal. It's like if you're a owner or you were a something today culture that we could relate to. These people, man, they had a livestock business that they were immersed in agriculture. Te you know, Texas cattle farming. That's it, man. These Texas cattle farming, that's all they do. That's all they can be concerned about. And they really don't branch off and do anything else because they've got 1,500 acres and, you know, 3,000. The shepherd is the same idea. But what I love about God is you always find these leaders doing something that's close to his heart. What is close to his heart? Somehow the idea of dealing with sheep. Because sheep relate, sheep relate so well to us. They're idiots. They're not smart animals. But they can be faithful in moments. And they can be led. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to boom in this mic, sorry. Uh, big voice. And I, I'm a little old school, only because I didn't have the options of uh, uh, technology. So I love. So if you're not using this, Austin, and it's hard, so it kind of gets busy. But if you're not like, beating this thing up and marking it up, and, and just throw it away. But, to, but it's, it's not becoming your daily bread. And when it's not your daily bread, then it's a book on the shelf. So somehow I have to come to Christ every day as he did in his prayer and say, God, give me this daily bread, and this is it. This is all I need to sustain. I've been in dark places. I know. I had nothing else. Except a little sack lunches or something. But this is what got me through, right? Exodus uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Moses had taken off. Does anybody remember the story? Raised up into the aristocracy. The, uh, arist the, the, yeah, the king, the king of the pharaoh. He's sitting in the pharaoh's house. He's really probably second in command at that point. He's probably the oldest son. 
Hunter. He's been adopted in. He was brought up in that culture, that education. I think about him thinking, wow, he really did sacrifice to leave. And here we find him after a 40-year stretch shepherding sheep. He's taken off from all the pomp. He's made a decision in his heart. He's fled Pharaoh because he stood up for his people. And here he is 40 years later, and here's where God finds him. How many people feel like 40 years have gone by, and now God's just finally finding you? And when he finds you, what, what, what are you doing when he finds you? Uh, what would Abraham said something about it? Salvation is this miracle experience. This is this reckless love because he found you a place of salvation when you were probably pretty broken. And to tell you the truth, yet that aroma of your brokenness is what attracted God to heal and mend. God is very far from a strong man. It's, it's when Sam, Samuel or Samson's at the very end of his life, blind and destitute, and he's pulling down. You see the strength of God that comes into that place and fulfills the plan and purpose of God. Moses, who is now wrecked, now he's shepherding uh, sheep, and he's coming around the side of the Amen. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Have you read this scripture before? Does it make any sense to you? It, it really shouldn't. This is some strange situation. How? Let's read it one more time. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. I don't know how many blazing fires from the midst of bushes you guys see every day. This would be a strange thing for him as well. This is a man who's walked the wilderness for 40 years, dealing with sheep and probably looking at all the landscape he can handle in that area. Do you think this was something strange and out of the ordinary for him? So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight. Why this bush is not burned up. And it's in that moment of him turning to the side and saying, I have to go look and see what's going on over here, that God responds to Moses' actions. The response is, when God saw he turned aside and looked, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, <clears throat> Moses, and he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. What does all that mean to us today? Like, I'm going to fast track this in a little while to the New Testament and just play with me in the old for a little bit, okay? Because I can't understand what's happening in the new unless I have a really strong sense and taste of the old. Unless I've been broken by the law, the law makes no sense to me. Unless I can understand that somehow I've read scripture and I have context as my king, and I'm understanding that the power of God, the idea of God always comes in the idea of fire. This refining, this thing that purges, it burns away everything. But here is the angel of the Lord, which we would call a theophany. Theos being the Greek word for God, right? You're seeing God. It's not him, but he's in the bush. He's in the flame. Looking at God and you're saying, God, you're burning that bush, not consumed. I was studying the bush. I thought, what the heck kind of bush was it? Do they have these bushes out there today? They think they do. Brambles, briars, thickets. And I was coming in this place, I realized, how many brambles and briars and thickets could you walk by? It didn't mean nothing to you. And somehow, since the fall in the garden, something took place in creation and nature to fight and war against the things that can come against it. 
do you know that there was no thickets and briars and brambles and thorns in the garden? Nature had to come into a place of self-defense after the fall. Mankind had to start covering itself in a place of self-defense against God after the fall. Everything took a turn at that point. And this is what I, this is just from real. But I saw that bush and I saw my life and I saw, God, you can burn that bush and everything about it and it's still there. You can come in this situation and I can come in the presence of God and his fire. And the fire is this. This is the first time the word is used in the scripture at this point. Take your shoes off your feet because this ground is holy. This is the first time that God... Uh, this is the first time that God has said about himself and what he is, holiness. And the fire that he can't come against is the righteousness, is the holiness of God in that place. And Moses, take your shoes off, because that's something created by man. You have to stand on bare feet before me in order to engage this in this fire in your life. And this is what's tremendous. Is you can blow through that scripture, it's weird, and I go, I wish I had a bush experience. But just like Eduardo said, you have had a burning bush experience. What was your burning bush? But the conversation carries on with Moses, and I really love this scripture. I wish we could teach the whole, the whole four, five, six chapters of Exodus because tremendous things are happening to release people from bondage. But there had to be a question, and there had to be a name. There is something that has to take place. I have to know the name of my God. Do you know that? There are a lot of gods out there, man, and guess what? They're warring for your heart. They want you. They want you bad. And once they get you, they'll destroy you. But they want you in the initial. And they're offering things to you right now. Paychecks. Oh, now you're a Christian? I'll change it up a little bit. I won't give you money because that'll make you turn from God. I'll give you some other stuff that you can really get off into. The first one for free. These gods will do anything they can to take you out. Because they want your life and they want you dead. The more effective you are as a Christian, the more you wage war against their kingdom. What can they do to pass you to make you complacent as a Christian, to get you fat and sitting in church pews, to and that's what they'll do. But when we come into the holiness of God and we see Him in a picture of the law in the Old Testament, then you better take those shoes off because you're on holy ground. The only way to come into contact with holiness is God. Well, you better be holy. Because this sin is not standing in front of God. Not in the sense that it would just so much, I always get this picture of like, you can't stand in the presence of God. You just couldn't handle it. You couldn't handle it. It's not that your body would just disappear because it would dissipate because of... You can't handle being in that presence. Do you know what pure love feels like? To a sinful body? It will run through you in the sense that you couldn't look at his eyes. I love the picture of Peter. He's looking at Christ being carried off on the cross. You see in the Passion of Christ, there's just this brown, bloody eye. And he's looking at Peter. What do you think that did? Do you think it wrecked him? It would wreck me. Imagine walking into the presence of God in His holiness and His fire, and it's wrecking you, and Moses covers his face because he can't. Oh, well. Isaiah has much the same experience, does he not? Chapter 6, he's dealing with the same God and the same angelic host and the same fire, and it's burning him and taking the sin away from Isaiah. Man, I love these are Old Testament symbols. Hey, chill out with me. I know you guys are like, I don't know where he's going. He's alone. Just be with me for a minute because these things are important in the future of relationship with God. Because now as we kind of fast forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 3, I want to look at verse 13. Now God has made some promises. Look, I'm using you. I'm going to get these guys out of Egypt. Okay? And Moses is asking questions. Why do you use me? I mean, come on, really? 
verse 11, or 13, Moses goes to God. He says, look, behold, okay, I am going to the house of Israel. I will say to them, hey, the God of your fathers has sent me. They may say to me, what is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's bizarre. That is not a response of a holy God. You know, it's amazing when you study the Hebrew scriptures. This is the, I get on fire. Like Christian gets up and starts talking about Greek words and parsing, and you can see he gets excited, right? I get excited when I find that something can be said by God that's really such a common thing in Israel. This word that we use, and I was like, hey, do we have a board that I can write on? We see the word YWH, right? It's a representation of some scriptures as God, Adonai, Yahweh. We have put some vowels in there because they didn't really have them in the Hebrew language. But here's what's important to know. The real word is haya, haya, And haya just meant to be, to come, to be present, to do something new, to be something more. In the beginning, God said, let there haya light, and there was. Let there be light. God says, be what I be. I am what I am. I've always been. And in that, I think Moses goes, all right, whatever. And he goes, hey, I am that I am. So he wants you guys, whatever. I don't think he really got it. He saw the holiness, and he saw the grandeur, and he came in the presence of righteousness. But God just basically said, I just be what I be. And guess what? I've always been that way. Here's something for the atheist in the heart who really has some depth. Do you know apologetics is what they're really for? You guys ever studied apologetics? It was a movement for a while, wasn't it? I just want to listen to Robbie Zacharias. Oh, anytime this Muslim comes at me, I'm going to get him because i got this Robbie. And it, it has nothing to do with the Muslim. It has everything to do with you. Well, I'm studying apologetics. You know, still it's rounding out my faith. Because evidently I have some issues, and God had to move to apologetics. The word means the defense of the faith. You don't have to defend him, by the way. You don't have to defend this church. You don't have to defend, you know, or you don't have to defend because God's our defense. I don't have to fight for my marriage. Okay. Let's go. I don't have to fight for, you know what fighting for your marriage does? Well, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get this, and I'll buy her a car, and look, I'm just going to really show up today and be a great husband in this way. You can fight for your marriage all you want to in your own strength and self. Do you really think it's going to save your marriage? No, you better fall on your face before a holy God. Because your marriage, if you're a believer, has been wrought in a covenant with Jesus himself. And if I don't fall madly in love with Jesus, and she doesn't fall madly in love with Jesus, this covenant is going to fall. Not because of him, but because of us. And so fighting for your marriage and doing things in the strength of your flesh, for nothing. Take your shoes off, brother. You're on holy ground. You don't even realize who you're coming in contact with. This is the God of all creation. And here's where I go with apologetics. Maybe I'll sound like this. There's always this, well, who created God? Mm -hmm. God created everything. Well, who created God? What are you talking about? You're talking about a creator. Creators don't have to be created. Don't you understand that creation comes from them? That they are the first, they are the last, there is nothing before them or after them? He is a creator. Hey, you can go back there and make some food and think you created something, some other materials are already existing. When God speaks and says, let there be light, this idea of ex nihilo, out of nothing, is God's voice that's creating in space and time. I don't know, just catch that. Creators don't have to be created, guys. They are creators. They have brought everything in existence by their love for by his love for us. 
And the idea that we would come against that is really moot. And if you're really intellectual, you would have to say, your argument doesn't stand up, brother. He's creator. Amen. Okay. So the idea of I am that I am. So hey, New Testament, we'll, we'll get there in a second, but I just want to delve into just a couple more issues. Because it's important. It's important for me to go back in that place and realize as I'm 76 times this word Hayah is used, and it can be the same way as the Lord. And it's funny because as common as that word was 76 times in 72 different verses, Hayah is used as just let it be, or just bring it to pass, or he just did this and it, it happened, or it was always was. It always will be. I mean, I, I had to get my iPod up because we had a little event going on, but I was just going to read verses and blow your Old Testament verses that just meant exactly what he said, and what he said was so common, yet you couldn't look at that without being transfixed. Amen? So, let's fast forward now. The idea is, if I'm discovering who I am is, going to the Old Testament and finding those words in the New to get clarification, right? If Christ did anything, he came and brought really sweet redemption. He brought some really sweet redemption. There were some things that were broken in the lives of Israel. Sometimes we forget that the covenant between Moses, this man we just talked about, and God was broken by people. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, the covenant made me to bring you out of Egypt was broken by you. But that's okay. I'm about to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. It'll be an everlasting covenant. I'm going to put a different mediator in between this, and it's going to be eternal, and the mediation is going to be done between my son. So hey, I gave you the chance understand because look I was telling Marsha you really don't understand bad until you understand good how can you have a uh, what were we doing we're doing something uh, bad music versus good music coffee versus bad coffee if you've never had bad coffee then coffee means nothing to you if you've always had good then you taste the bad like my god that was terrible God is the same contrast with us. the only reason that we want to change in any way is because you've come in contact with God and you're going okay than what I am, I need to change to that. I'll just strive really hard to be like him. I'll, I'll be Christ-like, and I'll, I'll just follow the precepts and the principles of the Bible, and I'll, I'll just try to do everything in my own strength. You're out of there. You're never going to achieve holiness in that way. You need, and I need, a revelation of who I am is. As common as that word is, we're going we're to shift now to a, for, to a conversation with a very common person, fisherman, the Lord of all creation, who is Christ in glory. And this conversation creates intimacy, and it denotes the fact that there's something we can come, and I did a Facebook post, I found this picture of Christ sitting in a coffee shop drinking coffee. I thought, how simple is that? If Christ just walked in your coffee shop wondering from coffee with you, what would that conversation sound like? Well, Jesus discussed the heavens and the earth. Let us go into the, the, the quantum of things. If not, wouldn't sound anything like that. I believe it would sound a lot like Matthew chapter 16. Verse 13, okay. You guys having fun? Am I losing everybody? I know. I finally got to the New Testament. I knew this guy. Maybe he's saved. Maybe he's not. Okay. I am all about digging deeper. There's a surface thing. I just don't I don't want surface Christianity. I don't want surface belief systems. Uh, it's going to make me good. I need something that's going to change me. I had a lot of issues. I don't know about y'all. I had a lot of issues. Really hard head. Really had to fall and break it in different ways, right? Um, I know that. And so when I read something like this, it does something to me. It lets me know that there's an intimacy outside of that flame that I couldn't come in contact with. Flame, 
changed the day that baby was born. It changed in the sense that it's different in heaven. It changed in the sense that now it's approachable. There's this beautiful scripture in Timothy that talks about the unapproachable light of God. How did the unapproachable light of God change into the light of the world? And how did I get to behold that light in His glory and come into contact with Him? 16, verse 13. There's a lot going on in this chapter. I love it. Christ basically blasted the Pharisees. and Everybody's getting hungry. And they're like, oh, we need some bread. He goes, hey, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We need to go get some leaven. I didn't get to make bread. He didn't get it. How do you not get it? I, look, bread is not the problem. He just fed the 5,000. Here's the issue. It's teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're trying to do something outside of me. And it's, called, it's becoming leaven. It's becoming leaven in the camp of Israel. It's becoming leaven in uh, Christianity today. Hey, legalism creeps in very smoothly, very softly, and it's good because we're still structure. I need order. I need to be just stepped out of grace. You've fallen in the sense that you're choosing man's order other than Christ's life. Amen. Verse 13. Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he was asking his disciples, who do you say, I'm sorry, who do they say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? So if someone walks up to you and they ask you or they ask people, who do you think the Son of Man is? I'm going to segue here. This is a very important thing. So I was reading a study from Harvard. Uh, sorry, I borrowed from uh, I'm reading a study from Harvard, Kelly Steinhouse into Harvard Square, this is for you, Pastor Christian, and uh, ask the question, who is Jesus? I don't want to mess this up, so I'm going to read it for you. So the responses, there was three of them, I kind of like the fourth one, because it shows the depravity of humanity, right? Uh, he's a person that took care of people. Okay. Who is Jesus? Oh, he sounded like a really cool guy. Okay, who is Jesus? Uh, he sounded like some man, probably not a savior. Who is Jesus? Um, I don't believe in any system that says that I'm the way and the truth and the life. I, I don't want to subscribe to that. Who do people say that I am? And this ties into the next question. Okay, Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? Peter's response is divine. Peter's response is special. Peter's response is given from heaven. He says, you are the Christ of God, the Son of God, the Anointed One of God. And he said, flesh and blood reveal that to you, Peter, my Father in Heaven. And here's what's interesting to me. I was talking to Marsha about this last night. And if this is just the, the crux of the message, let's just go with this and we'll, we'll figure something out later. But too many of us are living under a flesh and blood revelation of who Jesus is. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father who is in Heaven. Too many people today are living off the testimony and acts of other believers who have known Christ, and they are able to parrot back to you, my dad was a great pastor of the Baptist Church, and my mom was a deaconess, and they did these things, and they're great, and they're believers, and that's why I'm a Christian. Too many people are living off someone else's relation of who Christ is. What does that mean? That you really don't have a revelation of who Christ is. That your revelation only goes as deep as someone else's story. And sometimes I wonder as I talk to people, man, they've got a lot of sweet theology. But they got not a lot of Jesus. And the issue is sometimes we, we find, hey, these guys, man, 
the theologians, the rabbis, the pastors. They've got it. They've spent the time in education and seminary. Does that make them better than you? What? <laughs> spent $120,000 on that education at Harvard. Come on, brother. Those people are the best Christians ever. Does going to school and getting education... I'll, I'll back up. I'm not negating any of that. But I'm telling you, does it matter? Does it make you a better Christian? No. What about this fisherman? What about this Peter? Yeah. What, what education did Peter have? Who, who did Peter know? You guys weren't at the Bible study on Monday, but on Monday I was like, hey, dude, y'all are a mystery. Andrew is a monster. Andrew was sitting under John the Baptist's teaching. He had already left his profession as a fisherman. Andrew is the real deal. Andrew goes, and after he gets a revelation, meets Christ, says, hey, we're going to follow you. Where are you staying? I'm... He goes, hold on. Let's get somebody. Peter, we found Messiah. Dude, Andrew had it. We don't hear him at, well, I think one other verse about him the rest of the Bible. Dang it. What was, what was Andrew's education? Peter then gets a revelation. He knows this. And I know you're going to say, yeah, but later he kind of messed up. But he had a revelation of who God is in Christ. And he goes, who do you say that I am? And the same thing he's saying to you today, I need a revelation. Do you remember John the Apostle? Hit Revelation chapter 1. I love this. I was talking to Marsha. Marsha had a really sweet vision of Christ. We are at a homeless mission, and uh, I was worshiping. She had her eyes closed. She was praying. She was facing towards me, and she goes, I just had this vision of Christ. And he was walking in the midst of all the people. And he was just touching them. But he said, man, there was fire there, and his eyes were fire, and his body was fire, but it didn't look like fire. It didn't feel like fire, but he was just touching people. And then I realized that it was us that he was inside of were touching the people with this homeless mission. What does that fire look like now? And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like White wool like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. I'm going to read on a little bit. His feet were like burnished bronze, and when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many, uh, the sound of many waters. Right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth shot two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in strength. <clears throat> Keep going. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. What happened to the Apostle John when he came to the revelation of Jesus Christ? He saw glorified. He saw who he really was. The same person, this holy fire in the bush. He's looking and he goes, I'm on holy ground. Christ in this moment because the sin has been atoned for and paid for. He reaches down and says, get up. But it's the same response we have to have in who is great I am. The great I am is more than this. When Christ comes into conflict with people, if you're not really studying your scripture, you don't really know who I am is, boy, he really rattled the pots and pans. He houses the Pharisees. Because in John chapter 8, there's this huge discourse. After a woman gets left, they caught her in adultery. Jesus says, go and sin no more. Whether that's contextually supposed to be in that spot or whatever, he goes straight in the battle afterwards. And these Jews basically tell him that he was born in fornication, that he was of the devil, that he was not the son of God, and he said those things. And he said, let me tell you something. Before Abraham was, did you say that you're a son of Abraham? Before Abraham was, I am. Do you know what that meant to them? Do you know what that meant? You guys ever seen medieval movies? 
You ever seen these guys gauntlets? They're guarding their hand. They take the gauntlet off and they throw the gauntlet on the ground. You know what that means? It means it's on. And we use it as a metaphor today, but back then it was, hey, they outlawed that in the 18th century and in America because once you threw the gauntlet down, it was a fight. It was a duel. Whether it was with pistol or it was calling you, it's over, brother. And there's a lot of movies that kind of parody it and joke it, you know, get slapped with a gauntlet and a little thing where it was real. Christ said to the Jewish people, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you know what he was really saying? Those Greek words are very important. Even in their inflection. Ego, I Every time Christ said it, even before Abraham was, I am. Ego, I am. Ego, I am. It's kind of like when Christian got excited about the word. I forget what it was now, but the, uh, the, uh, the passion word, you know. Oh, we got to have, you know, epithemia. The same way ego I may is this. It's a declaration of his deity. Yeah. Yeah. I am the way. I am always been the way. I will always be the way. I'm always going to be the way. I am the truth. I've always been the truth. I'm always going to be the truth. You need to know. And guess what? I am the life. And so if you need anything more than that in your life, you don't. But when he threw that down, that's exactly why they took up stones to kill him. Because he made himself equal with God. And it goes on further in the scripture. There is kind of seven declarations of who I am are. And they're beautiful. And I just want to, I want to, I want to get them tonight in my heart. John chapter 6 is this great idea of just eating flesh and drinking wine. Discontent and, and separation. John 6, 6, 6. And John 6, 6, 6, and then he walked away. It just comes to revelation who he was. But he said, you don't understand. I am you would eat from me, you would never have hunger again. He then goes on to say that I am the light of the world in John chapter 8. I'm the light of the world. You know, if you forgot your laws of science, that light is the only thing that governs the universe. When light exists, there's order. Light is everything. When God said, let there be, light is more than that. It's a thing that was going to govern and create. Light is everything. Without light, the absence of light, and this is why it's to me, hey, they don't have any other sources of light in the time of Moses. So if a bush is burning, it's a pretty big deal. Okay, we don't have gas. Right? BP can't blow up. Down. Jesus! I'm the resurrection. I know, look, I know in the last days, Jesus, that you can resurrect. That's cool. Whoever's watching out there, who do you say that I am? Because it's not enough to stand in front of a holy on judgment day and say, well, my dad said, well, my, you know, my mom, she was a saint. We loved her. She was great. She said, my grandma, man, she prayed for me. She raised me. She did. And she said, it's not enough. You have to have your own revelation of who I am. It's, and coming in contact and understanding, like, what we're doing in this life is bigger than that. You're telling people that, hey, this problem that you're having today, that's okay. It's always been there for that. God will always be there for that. And he is right now. And this is what C.S. Lewis said, and I love this too. You can do whatever you want with Jesus. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him. You can kill him for being a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and worship him as God. But let's not patronize him anymore. Because this is exactly who he said he was. And if you guys, as a church, as a body, as a church life, a body life, are willing to worship and serve this God, serve him under the revelation of who he is. And it's, it's like... Uh, it's, 
we have this contact, we come in this place, we are broken, we do have this experience. Your salvation birthed that same fire. And every time you come into contact with people, they feel the same way around you. Do you know that? People are really uncomfortable around you. They don't want to be anywhere around you. They know you're a Christian. They know where you're at. They know what you're going to say. And you've never talked about Christ. But they can feel the same holiness in you. It bothers them. It turns them off. They're just constantly trying to get away from you. Yet they love you. They want to be around you. They want to talk to you. And when their life's falling apart, who they call you? Hey, brother, can you pray for me? I'm fighting for my marriage right now. And it's so funny because you go, why are you calling me? You don't even talk to me. Because you're the only holy thing that they can get to. As Christ was the only holy thing that they could throng around and get to. And so Christ's spirit now dwells in us and gives us the power. You guys can come up. Come up, Sarah. The power of the I Am Austin, of the I Am lives inside you, and it's doing something in this culture, in this community. I don't know the future.